0: Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnush Tarabi. Today's episode focuses on what it means to really live a wealthy life, told by a man whose job it is to report on the country's uber rich, how they think, how they act, how they save, how they spend, invest. Paul Sullivan writes the Wealth Matters column for the New York Times, and he's the author of the new book, The Thin Green Line, The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. It's an interesting phrase, the thin green line. It implies that there may not be such a huge barrier between the haves and the have-nots. We're going to dive into that. Paul himself is admittedly a part of the 1%, but in writing this book and reporting on this book, he discovered that he actually has some financial weak spots and that it's not how much you earn, but of course, how you manage it, how you protect it, that ultimately puts you in control of your money and not the other way around. A few takeaways from our time with Paul, how most people, regardless of their income, can get on the right side of the thin green line if they really want to, Paul's financial philosophy of fierce mental accounting, and how to spend smart lessons from people who have lots of money to spend. Here we go. Here's Paul Sullivan. Paul Sullivan, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on the thin green line.
1: Thanks very much, and thanks for taking the time to chat with
0: me. Absolutely. I've wanted to have you on since your publisher sent me the galley for your book. I thought, perfect. Uh, I've actually talked about you with Gretchen Rubin, who's been on the show. You know, She has a book out about habits, and uh, she's a fan of yours as well. And I've had Ron Lieber on the show, who is a colleague of yours at the New York Times. Let's talk about the thin green line. I'm fixated on the word thin. Um, Is that to say that... uh, the difference between those who have financial security and are wealthy with security in their lives and those who are uh, the opposite don't have financial security are financially fragile that the line is thin and therefore going back and forth is uh, something that can happen overnight and can be something that on the on the positive side you know you can be financially insecure and then secure relatively quickly
1: absolutely and I think um, you know, when I came up with the title, I, I never visualized it as a, a straight line, either vertical or horizontal. I, I visualized it much more as sort of, um, sort of the S&P 500 returns over the past 50 years. They start out kind of low and they they chart their way up. And, you know, I always thought of it as you, know, you can be on the, the modest uh, part of the thin green line, you know, toward the beginning of the returns, or you can be on the rich part, uh, rich as you know we traditionally define it. But the key was to be on, you know, the the, the top of that line. Is if you're standing on that that line, that S and P five hundred chart, no matter how much money you have, and at that point, you know, the way I look at it, that's when you have control over your life, and life doesn't have control over you. And of course, the opposite is you know, you're under that line, you, you're sort of hanging on to it with your hands and, you know, you, you, you don't want to fall off it. But, you know, as you said, it's something that in, in writing the book in thinking about this, you know, it's not just writing the book, it's been covering stuff like this for, for more than a decade. I just came to think that with some small changes to decisions we make and to some small changes to our behaviors, um, most people, regardless of their income, could get on the right side of the thing green line if, if they really wanted to.
0: I think that's what I, I admire most about this book and the message is that, you know, you're not talking about how the rich can get richer or the rich can get wealthy. It's really how everybody with their given incomes um, can manage that money properly to feel rich, but more importantly, to live a life of wealth, Um you were had your aha moment for this book uh, you start the book out talking about a group called Tiger 21 and um, it's a group of exceedingly wealthy individuals who uh, as you say they meet monthly to talk about you know, to give each other counsel, but also to gripe, you know, like complain and kind of try to, um, talk about their problems. Cause apparently even when you're rich, you've got problems and you were at this meeting kind of attending as an observer, but also a participant. They looked at your personal financial situation and they were very critical, very critical. Um, you yourself are in the 1%. Were you surprised by what they were telling you? And what was your biggest takeaway from that meeting?
1: Surprised is an understatement. I was completely despondent and depressed after I walked out of this uh, you know very fancy lunch meeting. Um, you know I, I went in there this is sort of as my day job as the, the Wolf Matters column, columnist for the New York Times. I went in there thinking, you know these guys are interesting they've not only made a lot of money, uh, which you know m- many people have made a lot of money, but they've been able to hold on to that money and they want to meet to sort of make sure. They continue to make the right decisions and they offered me the chance to sort of you know present our portfolio their their signature moment when they're not having you know a, a fancy lunch or listening to speakers or, or griping is to really go through each person's portfolio sort of once a month uh, you know one person per month and say this is good this is bad etc and so when I put together what my wife and I had I mean we're in the one percent by earnings, but you know we're not in the one percent by wealth, which is about you know eleven twelve, thirteen million dollars right now. All of these guys are you need ten million bucks to get into tiger twenty one then you pay you know thirty grand a month, a uh, thirty grand a year to to you know meet um but I figured if I just present my portfolio to them, I'll get a good story it'll you know I'm sure. They'll, they'll pick me apart for a couple things here and there, but you know I'll turn it into a column. Uh, my readers will get sort of insight into what it's like to hang out with these guys, and we'll move on. Well, it, it didn't quite happen that way, and essentially, to describe in the book, I, it felt like a game of whack-a-mole. They kept going around the table, and you know it was like one old guy after another was whacking me for something that I hadn't even thought of. They could have cared less about my portfolio construction. I could care less about my, you know, balance of stocks and bonds and commodities. That was totally irrelevant to them. And, and it, it's irrelevant to, you know, a lot of people. It's, they were whacking me for not having enough life insurance, mm-hmm. not having disability insurance, not thinking that, you know, thinking that the future was in some way going to resemble the present. I mean, one of the things they um, really beat us up for was uh, a condo we had in Naples, Florida, and Naples, Florida is a fancy place. Our condo was not all that fancy. But, you know, we weren't kidding ourselves. We knew we, we didn't need this thing. We, we wanted this thing. And it was great. And, you know, they pointed out that if, if things, you know, went wrong quickly or for a long time, we could be in a lot of trouble. And so I left that day thinking, you know what, if I can't get these things right and I think about this stuff, every day. And I've thought about this stuff every day for years and years and years. If I can't get this stuff right, I mean, what chance does somebody who has a day job in which he or she's not writing about money, what what chance does that person have of getting it right? And that to me was, you know, what really started me thinking about a lot of the things that went into the thin green Line.
0: It's interesting what you, what they were explaining to you is, you know, making sure that your future does not resemble your, your current today um in terms of your financial journey i think that so many of us are consumed by earning more but not really what to do with that money once we accumulate it in order to really radically change our life style in a way that is a more meaningful more satisfying more fulfilling that's kind of the missing ingredient in a lot of this education
1: absolutely and you know to be clear my wife and i in our minds were not living beyond our means in any way we didn't have any you know credit card debt we were saving for our, our you know then we only had one child we do not have two but we we're saving for her to to go to college we had you know set aside a a decent amount of money um so it wasn't like we were living or at least we didn't think we were living a, a a super lavish life but you know we hadn't thought of the eventualities and you know for example we only had a a, a 2 year old at the time now we have a a 2 year old and a, a 5 year old and they were really good at saying you know we've been through this we've we've had kids our kids are you know in their twenties thirties forties uh you have no idea what this is going to do to your financial life and and of course they were right they're a hundred percent right we, we had no idea what it was going to do to our financial life um but you know I, I think there's also you know one of the things I, I did take away from that is there is a, this need for for balance and you know nowhere in the book do I preach you know uh, sort of abstemious life I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody not to have their their Starbucks latte every day if, if that gives them great joy um, what I do talk a lot about is the the need to make choices and I think that's what that day did for my wife and me I mean we still yeah. um, spend money on, on on nice things that, that, that we need or, uh, or or really want but you know a lot of the other things out there we think hey you know what we don't need to do that you know we don't need a condo we can just go and take a vacation and and, and, and rent a nice place, and it's, it's you know, less money and, and less stress.
0: Well, I really appreciated that about your book, is that you, speaking of choices, speaking of spending, you dedicate a whole chapter to spending smart, and it's called Spending Tips from People Who Spend a Lot But Aren't Broke. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do we all need to learn from that chapter?
1: Look, these guys are all making choices, and they're, uh, you know, three of the guys in there are real characters. One uh, made a a fortune selling shower doors in Louisville, Kentucky. And he, I mean, he made a lot of money, but it wasn't a very rewarding life. And so he had a pile at the end and he thought, what am I going to do? And like many, uh, upper class folks, he he had this idea of of buying a vineyard, which is normally, uh, a disaster. It's a complete money pit. money pit, pit. Yeah. Yeah. Total money pit. The wine stinks. Nobody wants it. And you know, five years later you, you plow everything under and you just live on a farm. Uh, for him, it, it didn't work out that way because he was very savvy about being involved. He didn't just sort of, you know, let other people come in and and do everything. He and his wife, uh, they were boxing up orders. they were putting the labels on, they were ordering the corks. It became, it wasn't so much a hobby as a sort of a second career form. Um, and he, uh, he, he had this sense of, he was very fortunate to be able to spend his money on this, but he wasn't spending such a large amount of his wealth that it was going to, you know, cause some problems. And, you know, another guy in this chapter is a, a football player uh who was a very high draft pick. And, you know, football players get picked on all the time. So the football players and lottery winners are, are the, the two worst people uh to ever give up. Dissipators, you call yeah, them. Dissipators. Yeah, dissipators. You give them a large sum of money and it's gone. Well, this guy, Paul Poslinski, uh he was a lot savvier than that. He came from a really normal family in Pennsylvania, sort of, you know, auto mechanic, school teacher, and studied economics at Penn State. And we had these talks about cars, because you, you have this image of, of football players, uh, you know, all driving, you know, fancy cars, Rolls Royces, Bentleys, what have you. And when I first talked to him, it was during the NFL lockout a couple of years ago, and he didn't even own a car. He was signing autographs at the local Nissan dealership, and they gave him a car for free. And that was good enough for him. It was just he got an SUV, he drove it. Well, then he gets traded to Jacksonville and you know nobody wants him to sign autographs, so he has to buy a car. So he he agonizes over this. And this is a guy you'll see in the book. I mean, if he never plays another down in football, he's guaranteed twenty million dollars. Twenty million dollars in his early twenties. If he happens to do well, he could make, you know, forty to forty-five million dollars. Well, when it comes to buying a car, what he really wants is a BMW. And he wants the biggest BMW there is, you know, eighty, ninety dollars $90,000 car. And he just can't do it. He can't buy the $90,000 BMW. Now, instead of buying, you know, a, to- a Toyota that this giant man is not going to fit into, mm-hmm. he buys an Audi. And he buys, instead of buying a $90,000 car, he buys a $65,000 car. Well, that doesn't really seem like, you know, suffering to most people. But what was fascinating to me was his thought process. Here's a guy who clearly could buy the giant BMW if he wanted to. I mean, he, he's you know, worth tens of millions of dollars. But he'd given that kind of thought on a, on a decision like that um, and, and gone with the, the less expensive but still very nice car, and that showed me that a guy like that, uh, you know, as a classic dissipator, a guy like that is, is going to make those little decisions throughout his life, long past his football career, And chances are he's going to remain on on the wealthy side of of the thin green line. He's thinking these things through.
0: Sometimes the best gift is to experience what it's like to be poor, right? So that when you do amass wealth, you actually still have the psychology, the, the right behavioral mindset to think about what you're buying, right? Sometimes it backfires, of course, when you're a dissipator and you get $20 million in one windfall. You could definitely go the other way. We've heard a lot about people losing their fortune. So it's rare to hear that kind of a story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd also say, you know, there are parts of this book that are are are, are very personal. And, uh, you know, poor is a relative term. I, I would say I grew up, I mean, from where I live now, I, I grew up very poor. I, I probably was, you know, lower middle class or, you know, we were, you know, uh, I remember at one point, you know, when I was in elementary school, uh, it was really crummy elementary school, and we had to go on uh, subsidized lunch. And I remember one week there was a, you know, a, a, a substitute teacher, and she didn't know that if I gave her whatever it was, you know, five dollars, I was supposed to get me my lunch tickets for the whole week, as opposed to, you know, say the other kids paid twenty dollars, and she didn't give me enough tickets. And I remember you know that 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 embarrassment of not wanting you know any of my classmates and i'm i'm mm-hmm. like 10 years old at this time you know 10 11 years old i don't want any of my classmates to to know anything about that and it caused a lot of problems i remember going home that that day and you know i didn't have the right number of lunch tickets my mom was furious that i didn't speak up but you know stuff like that you don't forget and honestly i wouldn't wish that on anybody uh cuz it's given me great perspective in life um, but I guess I'd slightly disagree like with you in the sense that I mean growing up poor it, yeah it gave me a lot of perspective but it also does weird things to you too because he, you know <laughs> you start to uh, I mean I am a fierce you wouldn't fierce, wish
0: it on anybody but it if you can handle it in as an adult if you sort of like you say you have to take perspective that is the gift
1: yeah it's I mean I have perspective in two ways one uh, everything I have I'm immensely grateful for it because it's more than I ever thought I would have. And it's, it's certainly more than I need. Um, but you know, I also, I spend a lot of time writing about wealthy people, but I have a lot of empathy for people with less. And, you know, when I really drill down with some of these wealthy people, many of them came from very modest circumstances. And, you know, the ones who are the most interesting to me are the ones who, who retain that perspective and know that, um, yeah, they, they they were smart they worked hard but but they also got a little lucky uh, along the way
0: yes and in this book you talk a lot about their stories and also your story you just share with us and I um an anecdote from growing up and I I can almost relate I remember being in school and what was I think awkward for kids who were unsubsidized lunch was that it was um their tickets were given to them in front of everybody else and yeah. they were the ones who some of them sat separately, you know, and they they bought lunch, so that instantly kind of labeled them as the kids who couldn't afford to bring lunch from home. And uh, suddenly, you're getting this like perspective on the varying levels of of income and, and your economy in your neighborhood. And it's no, it's not a fair way to be, you know, to be labeled.
1: No, and I hope they've they've thought it through a little bit better. Yeah, uh, because, you know, I'm 42, but i remember you know, you get a different color ticket or stamp it in a different way. And now I look and say, are you kidding me, man? (laughs) It's it's tough enough to be a kid. (laughs)
0: Exactly.
1: Color ticket. Hey, here's the poor kid. uh, Beat him up. I mean, so, so hopefully they've gotten a little wiser about that.
0: So now given your history and then also your professional career dedicated to covering Wealth Matters for the New York Times, what's your personal financial philosophy, Paul?
1: Uh, I mean, I started to say. I mean, uh, my well, obviously, I think in terms of the same green line these days. But you know, what I've been throughout my life, uh, and it's the the sort of you know first chapter in this book uh, is is a fierce mental accounter. And you know, for people who don't know what that is, I mean, mental accounting is essentially the the idea of of bucketing all of your expenses, money that's coming in, money that's going out, and if you are a, a, a traditional student of, of, of economics, you think this is foolish. And it's foolish because money is fungible, so it doesn't really matter, money goes wherever. But if you're a disciple of behavioral finance, as I am, you, you see this for, for what it is. And you see how it helps people make sense of the world uh, and also you know, have a sense of calm. So you know, for example, you got a bunch of money coming in each month, that's your salary. And you can think, okay, some goes in the bucket for my rent or my mortgage. Some goes in the bucket for saving. Some goes in the bucket for necessities like food, gas. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe I got to take my dog to the vet, something like that. Some goes in for emergencies. And of course, you know, there's some that goes into the bucket uh, for fun. And I'm a huge advocate of of, of making sure you spend that money uh, in the bucket for fun because there are years of my life when I, I don't think I, I did that enough. And I think we can, we can't deprive ourselves, but that mental accounting it it helps me, and I've I, you know turned my wife onto it, and she thought it was totally ridiculous when I first you know explained it to her. But it, but it's helped her. She's a small business owner, and it's helped her um, think about you know the expenses in in her business. And if nothing else, it, at least for me, it gives me a sense of calm. Like okay, this mm-hmm. is in this bucket, that's in that bucket, and you you kind of move along. And some months you have some left over, and, and that's great. Some months you know it's it's a little tighter, but but it helps you. Uh, you know, have a sense of, of where the money is going so that you don't end the month and say, Jesus, where did all that money go? I have no yeah. idea where that money went.
0: It sounds, it is it is very fundamental. So many of us neglect to take this very basic step of just having this connection with our money. I think, you know, for a, a bag of reasons, whether we're afraid or we're confused or we don't have time or all of the above, but um, the clarity that it can provide is priceless. You talked already about your lunch tickets growing up, and I'd love to transition now to yet another money memory that you had that uh, growing up was pivotal for you, that as an adult now you reflect on that moment and think, you know, that's probably where I get some of my um, emotional baggage or my straight thinking, my good thinking, my bad thinking about money. I mean, we all have Various memories of money growing up, and what was one that was influential?
1: Man, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna tell you another bad story. I'm (laughs) just kind of, you know, and and I'm not a bad story guy, but um, you know, my parents were divorced in 1983 when I was 10, and I mean, that was an era when people were were lousy at getting married, and they were equally lousy at at getting divorced, and they would fight over this this child support check, which you know was $85 a week. And and to this, you know, I'll never forget that amount. And, you know, it was supposed to arrive on Friday. And instead of arriving on Friday, it would get mailed on Friday, maybe Saturday. And it would, you know, arrive on Tuesday or Wednesday. And without fail, there would be an argument every single week about this $85. And at the time, I thought, geez, you you know, there's kind of two ways to look at it. At the time, I thought, you know, why doesn't my dad just mail it a couple of days earlier? And then, then you realize that you know, when people get divorced, they they really don't like each other, and they do all kinds of lousy things to one another. So, so you know, at forty two, I can understand that. But I now look at it and I say, gee, you know, why did my mom get so angry every week? Because it just was going to happen. You know, there's, there's some things you can't control in life. So as long as it arrives on Tuesday, it, it'll be fine. You can budget accordingly. But it was, uh, it, it was obviously it was a, it was a bit of a, a scarring memory. But it got me to think that I never wanted to live in such a way uh, that I was so dependent on you know one check that if if one check didn't show up or it didn't show up on time, um, I would be in a lot of trouble. And so you know, even when I first started out and didn't make a ton of money, I always made sure I had you know some sort of little you know reserve and and it could have just been. You know, a couple hundred dollars, but just something that was going to be there. So I'd never get to the moment when I'd say, oh, no, you know, I don't want this to be. There was a house of cards. Like, oh, no, mm-hmm. the, the check doesn't arrive. What am I going to do? Um, but, you know, I, I, I've told you two, two sad stories. I, I want to I tell a more positive story. And that was, you know, my grandfather was hugely influential in my life. And I, and I say he was the, the first wealthy person I ever knew. And he was very wealthy, um, but he was a retired postal worker. He was a retired postal worker who lived uh, with my grandmother in, in a ranch house that was about thousand square feet. He had it paid off. He liked to play golf, played the local municipal course. You know, once a week they'd go out to dinner. Um, you know, he had his pension, and, and somehow, you know, a guy who probably never made more than twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year, uh, you know, at one point had four or five hundred thousand dollars saved up. Uh, he was just, you know, he had that sense of of enough he had that sense of you know he was able to buy all the things he and my grandmother wanted but you know he he didn't there there are a lot of things he he didn't need and he was just a great influence to me in thinking about that that trade-off between needs and wants and he didn't deprive himself um, but there are a lot of things he, he just didn't care about and and I try to you know when I'm in the the moment of of trying to make a big financial decision, uh, I try to think in the way he did. And, and that was, you know, hugely helpful in a, in a positive way.
0: What's a decision that you've made in your, um, adult financial life that you're very proud of? What's your so money moment?
1: I think we are very good at, uh, paying things off. And a lot of, uh, not that we don't like debt. We understand the, the, the need for debt for big purchases, like, like a house. Um, But my wife and I are, you know, we get great joy out of paying balances down to zero, which is going to sound about as nerdy as it can be. But I remember the day I was able to pay off my student loans when I was in my late 20s. And it was just to not have, you know, several hundred dollars a month going out to pay my student loans. That was just liberating and freeing and it felt wonderful. And now when we do things like, you know, pay off a car when we pay off a big uh, chunk of our mortgage when we you know make a good sized payment for our daughter's 529 plan it's just a sense of relief that something has been taken care of something has been funded and you know if something goes really wrong we won't have to worry about that
0: there's a lot of fulfillment that comes with just seeing your money sit in a bank account, isn't
1: there? <laughs> I feel like a miser now. The way you put no, it, no, no, no.
0: But I, I hear this from my other guests who are financially independent, very secure. Because um, this comes up a lot. You know, what's there's this um, there's like this contradiction when you're when you make a lot of money or you have enough money. You know, you're still tempted maybe to buy things, and you think certain things will make you happy. Um, but time and time again, you know, like once you' once you have that money and it's sitting in the bank, um, it's a good feeling. and you, suddenly all the things that you think you want um, don't seem so imminently necessary.
1: yeah, and 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 I you know I, I, I like nice things, but but the, there comes a time when you know I think sometimes my wife and I feel, okay, boy, we we've we bought a, a few too many nice things in the past six months. and and we'll do exactly what you said. we'll We'll focus a bit more on on that, that number in, in the bank account and, and getting it up there and keeping it up there. And and that's, you know, it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the start about my book is that, you know, when you're on the right side of the thin green line, you have control over life and and life isn't going to control you. And that's, um, I think that's why there's, you know, great comfort in a bank balance or great comfort in, you know, paying your your life insurance. And so, you know that, boy, if I get hit by a bus, you know, that, that'll stink. Uh, I'll miss my family. But at least they won't have to worry. There'll, there'll be some money coming in and it'll take care of them. And, and there's something, you know, as you said, you know, very, very comforting in that.
0: Would you say this is maybe going out on a limb, but like... Generally speaking, the difference between rich and wealthy. Rich is kind of exciting and, and sexy, but it's kind of short lived and it's very fragile at times. Wealthy is kind of boring, but it but it lasts and it gives you the security that is priceless.
1: You are one hundred percent correct. Um, but as you know, somebody in the boring camp, I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, there are moments <laughs> where, I, like, I see that guy in the Maserati. I know, yeah. It's, you know, <laughs> I know he probably only has you know a month or two savings, and this is who knows his third wife. I'm like, man, that maserati looks nice. That looks a lot <laughs> better than you know my SUV with car seats and Cheerios and books and screaming kids. so um <laughs> but I guess maybe that's you know the the, the grass is greener, so that, that rich side is is sexy and seductive. but um look, I don't think anybody anybody who's ever experienced true stress over money as, as I have at different points in my life will say they'll take boring over sexy and fun every single day of the week because there's no more you know pit in your stomach mm. feeling then how am I going to pay for this or if this doesn't come in at the time and this, this house of cards type mentality and, and once you get past that you you will take boring every single day of the week and and be happy that you know there's yogurt and Cheerios on the seat. The <laughs>
0: Amen to yogurt and Cheerios.
1: <laughs>
0: Let's go through some quick fill in the blanks. This is a yeah. fun part of the show where first thing that comes to your mind, kind of stream of consciousness. Finish the sentence. If I won the lottery tomorrow, mega uh, the mega lottery, first thing I would do is
1: I'd buy a boat. Yeah, I totally. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change a thing about my life. I wouldn't stop my, my day job. I wouldn't stop writing books. I'd, I'd, I'd live my life exactly as it is. Um, but before you know, we had this Tiger 21 uh, talk, we had a little boat in Florida. And I'm not saying I'd buy you know, a 100-foot yacht. I'm saying I'd just buy a little <laughs> boat that I could tool around in because it's a lot of fun. And it is a total waste of money. But, you know, sometimes things that are fun are a total waste of but, money.
0: But, you know, it'll give you experiences. And as you know, we've done the study. The studies have been yep. done. Experiences can lead to a more fulfilling life.
1: Absolutely. And that's, you know, when we got rid of the condo in Florida, we we started taking vacations to different spots. Mm-hmm. And those experiences, those vacations with our kids, uh, I mean, that's, that's the fun. That's the fun in life.
0: Truly. What is one expense that makes your life easier or better?
1: Uh... Boy, I would say <laughs> the guy who cuts my lawn. It uh, <laughs> absolutely he cuts my lawn in the summer and he uh, shovels my snow in the winter and he doesn't uh, charge me a fortune to do it. And if I was an economist, I would say uh, you know me paying him is is worth more than than my time out there, you know, cutting the lawn or shoveling the snow. So that is an expense that makes things definitely better.
0: Uh, how about a splurge? The big thing that you splurge on—we talked about not giving up our lattes if you don't want to. What's a splurge that you enjoy that you might spend too much money on, but it's—it's—it makes you happy?
1: I get my suits made. I go to this uh, this little shop uh, called the Andover Shop across from Harvard uh, in Harvard Square, and uh, you know, once a year, whenever I need a new suit, uh, they fit me and they. Make the suit, and they order it, and uh, it's just—it's it's so comfortable. Uh, it gives me a lot of confidence because it fits so nicely. But it's—you know—it's probably probably two two and a half times just going into Brooks Brothers and, and buying a suit off the rack.
0: Well, when you're lunching with Tiger Twenty One, <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> there's
0: <laughs> no the off rack. the rack there.
1: There's no off the rack. I mean, <laughs> they, they do give you a free glass of Chardonnay when they go. You go in to get it's a part of your money.
0: thirty thousand dollar <laughs> annum. Yeah, exactly. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is,
1: Um, oh boy, that you know, one this yeah, I'll give you a serious answer. One thing I wish I'd known about money growing up is that money is just a means of exchange. That's all money is. The more money you have, the more money you can buy. The less money you have, the less money you can buy. But it doesn't mean you're a better person. It doesn't mean you're you're somehow lacking if you have less of it. It's no uh, judgment on your intelligence. If you have more of it, uh, and unfortunately, I grew up in a in, in a place at a time uh, with circumstances that money carried so much more weight. Money had all of these psychological connotations, all this baggage to it. And it's, you know, finally at 42, I look at it and money is just a means of exchange. And if I could drill that into to everybody, particularly people who think that, you know, the, the, the car they drive or the house they have means something more than it's a nice car and it's a nice house. Uh, money is just a means of exchange. That's one thing I definitely wish I knew earlier on.
0: When I give to charity, I like to give to blank because.
1: I give to uh, organizations that help the blind. Uh, I give to, uh, well, one organization called the American Foundation for the Blind that was uh, Helen Keller's, uh, Helen Keller helped start it. And they're an education organization that helps uh, sort of be a sort of a nexus for, for all different people, all different organizations in the, in the blindness field. And, and I also give to, uh, a guide dog charity. And the reason for that is, um, you know, I, I, think blindness is one of those things where, uh, for the most part, you know, people can't help it. It j- just happens. Yeah. But with, um, with, with really good resources, the resources are so sophisticated, uh, people can live, a much better life but this stuff is expensive Like right? to, to, to get the machines to, to, to type the braille. I mean this stuff is these things are really expensive so to, to give a bit of money and, and help there is wonderful and then you know giving to the guide dog uh charities same thing I mean these dogs do amazing things to, to help people but you know the the selfish part there is you know both my wife and we, we have two labs so Aww, well. we're, we're dog people so that that does the connection
0: I love that. I love that so much. And finally, Paul, I'm so money because...
1: Because I'm talking to you. Uh (laughs) Oh. Well,
0: and also you're the Wealth Matters columnist for the New York Times. So literally you are so money, but um, your stories uh, are brought to life in your book, yours and so many others. So much to learn from. Everyone go out, buy the thin green line, the money secrets of the super wealthy. Paul Sullivan, thanks so much and good luck with the book.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I loved it. This is so much fun.
0: And that is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Paul Sullivan, check out his website, pauljsullivan.com. The book, again, is called The Thin Green Line, The Money Secrets of the Super Wealthy. And as always, keep your questions coming. Head over to sowmoneypodcast.com, Click on Ask Farnoosh and ask me, what is your biggest money question? It could also be a question about career, life, Uh, a previous guest, guests you'd like to see. You could also give me feedback. What do you like about the show? What do you not like? I am all ears and every weekend I attempt to answer all the questions. And if I don't get to them that weekend, they go on to the next weekend. And one request, if you like what you're hearing and you'd like to see the podcast continue to shine its light in the iTunes store where it does get most of its traffic, please write a review. Take a few minutes to hop onto iTunes and write a review. And when you do, email me, email me at farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. Let me know. Every week I draw one reviewer's name to receive a free 15-minute money session with me. And I announce this winner on the Saturday episode of So Money. Thanks again to my guest, Paul Sullivan. Thank you for tuning in. See you right back here tomorrow. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money.